Looking for a new source to inspire students, alumni, faculty, staff, administrators, and trustees of Jesuit works? Check out Jesuit Saints and Blesseds Spiritual Profiles, available now at jesuitsources.bc.edu. That's jesuitsources.bc.edu. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Great to be with you, Ashley. Great to be here. We've got a good show. Yeah. A lot to get through. A <laughs> lot, lot to get through. Um, talking about um, some new TV shows, talking about climate change, because it's Earth Day. But without any further ado, what do we have on tap this week? We have a michelada, which is one of my favorite drinks. It's it's basically a Mexican beer with hot sauce, Worcestershire sauce, some celery salt, lime juice mixed into a beautiful ombre beverage. Yeah, it looks really, really good. I have never really gotten one of these. I usually go for beer or cocktail, but this beer cocktail is a new venture for me. So, All right, breaking new ground. Cheers. Cheers. And who are we talking to this week? We are talking to Dorothy Fortenberry. Dorothy is a screenwriter, playwright, and essayist. She's the executive producer and writer on Apple TV's new series, Extrapolation. Yeah, so it's a great conversation with Dorothy. She's actually the one who recommended this drink for us. Um, and before she worked at Extrapolation, she was a writer on The Handmaid's Tale, uh, which is a you know, big show a couple of years ago. Uh, so she she knows Hollywood, but she's also a committed Catholic and and brings that sensibility to her writing in ways that aren't always obvious, but like we try to dig into and, and find those points in the series. No, totally. So we're going to be talking about climate change, about the new Apple TV show, Extrapolations, and about Pope Francis. So stay tuned for that. And in Signs of the Times, we'll be talking about a controversy at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. They recently uh, kicked off some Franciscans who they've been working with for a while. And then we're talking about SatanCon, a meeting of the members of the Satanic Temple that's taking place next week in Boston. But before we get to all of that, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. Really excited about this first sponsorship because I am big into saint medals. I feel like that is a piece of Catholic tradition that I'm all about. And Saints for Sinners offers hundreds of saint medallions, and they're all beautifully hand-painted in New Orleans. Each medal is unique, and there's a saint for everyone and anyone. Animal lovers, for musicians, for mothers, for daughters. These saint medals are all wearable and make great gifts for any occasion. The saints offer us guidance, perspective, comfort, and most of all, hope. And these one-of-a-kind hand-painted saint medals are tiny tokens of that hope. Find your saint online at saintsforsinners.com. They're imported from Italy and hand-painted in New Orleans. Again, visit saintsforsinners.com. Zach, you're into video games, right? Occasionally, yes. <laughs> I would not call myself a big gamer, but I, I love playing them. I love keeping up with friends with them. Um, and it's a fun it's a fun way to pass the time. All right. Well, imagine playing a video game that allows you to have fun while exploring your Catholic faith, going back in time through more than 2,000 years of amazing history. You'll find that in the acutest game, which is coming soon. Join Blessed Carlo Acutis on epic adventures, traveling through time to explore the lives of centuries of Catholic saints, amazing holy sites, and the messages of biblical stories. Created in honor of Blessed Carlo Acutis, a young computer programmer who documented Eucharistic miracles in a website that he built before his death from leukemia in 2006. 
So please visit www.acutistgame.com to see an exciting preview and pre-order the game. Everyone is talking about the incredible quality of the characters, scenery, music, and gaming activities. Yes, the Acutist Game is built by Faith Games Incorporated, a company founded by Catholic technology experts to build gaming, virtual reality, and other multimedia content for Catholics. The Acutist Game is perfect for all ages, ideal for individual game players, and for religious education programs. Again, please visit www.acutistgame.com to pre-order. The game will be available for PCs in October. And it's the perfect gift for Easter or Christmas. Get the Acutus game today. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Uh, and our first story comes from the Walter Reed Army Medical Center. It's drawn criticism in recent weeks from both Catholic leaders and lawmakers for its decision to end a contract for pastoral care uh, with a group of Franciscans who had been serving personnel at the hospital for over two decades. Yeah. So in March, Walter Reed notified the priest from the Holy Name College Friary in Silver Spring, Maryland, that their contract would not be renewed, which some have interpreted as being fired. Um, the hospitals instead decided to contract with the secular for-profit defense firm Mac Global, noted for their pastoral sensibilities. Yeah. <laughs> so Catholic leaders are not happy about this. Uh, and Timothy Brolio, who's now the president of the U.S. Bishops' Conference, as well as the head of the military archdiocese, so someone who's very invested in, in care for, for military personnel, said in a statement, quote, the refusal to provide adequate pastoral care while awarding a contract for Catholic ministry to a for-profit company that has no way of providing Catholic priests to the medical center is a glaring violation of service members and veterans' right to free exercise of religion. So, Help me understand what the Franciscans did at the hospital. So are they are are they the equivalent of like a chap like a military chaplain, but for like a military hospital? Yeah, my impression is that they didn't only serve Catholics, but I that has not been clear for me in the coverage is whether these were the people who served the Catholics, and now there's this secular defense firm that's going to like give staff chaplains and priests to serve different religious groups. So I've found that a little bit confusing. But it, it seems like there's been a pretty long-standing relationship with them. And yeah, so they've been serving causing... them for, for two decades. They're based in a friary in nearby Bethesda, Maryland. So I imagine, you know, it's a it's a personnel decision, but I would imagine these friars have longstanding and deep relationships with the people they've been serving at this hospital. So besides being like an employment issue, I'm sure it's also a, a personally wounding to have this cut off and for it to happen right in the middle of Holy Week. Um, they were notified. In, yeah. yeah. So they were notified in March that their um, contract wasn't going to be renewed. And then they kind of continued serving into Holy Week um, when they weren't supposed to and were served a cease and desist notice from from uh, Walter Reed. And that's when they actually stopped serving there. Which is wild. And and so in the meantime, uh, active duty, an active duty army priest on its staff and priests from the surrounding region are providing Catholic pastoral services at the hospital. So um, I did not realize this was going to be uh, this even happened, but it does. Our thoughts and prayers are with the people who might be affected at Walter Reed at this yeah. time. And Walter Reed had says ha, does say that their contract with Mac Global is under review to see if they will be able to provide adequate care. So we will see in the coming weeks, I presume, uh, whether they come to the conclusion that they can. Yeah, maybe they're going to bring in like a McKinsey to see which the best, <laughs> which is the best like pastoral team. That for was the Christian so. Community. Archbishop Brolio did mention being underbid by this contracting group, um, but it. 
Walter Reed hasn't actually said if, if it was a cost-cutting measure or not, but that mm, is the suspicion. <laughs> interesting. All right. What's our next story, Ashley? So the members of the Satanic Temple will be gathering in Boston from April 28th to 30th for SatanCon 2023. I... Read this first when you suggested this story as SantaCon 2023, mm-hmm. and Catholics aren't thrilled. Yeah. And I was like, "Yeah, no, that makes sense." <laughs> yeah, I, why are we doing SantaCon in April? <laughs> yeah, also not. Well, I'm not thrilled about SantaCon oh. at any time. Uh, I feel <laughs> for like for people who don't live in New York, can you explain SantaCon? Sure, a, a bunch of how do I put this objectively as possible? Bros, a bunch of bros, and that's not specific to one gender. No. I would say, <laughs> but a bunch of bros come in and dress up in Santa and decide to puke all over bar f- floors um, throughout Lower Manhattan uh, on a weekend in December. So I can't say it's like my favorite time of the year, but I know it's a deeply held high holy day for many. Um, so when I saw this, I was like, "Oh, SatanCon, SantaCon, one letter off. Maybe they're they're yes. similar." But what what it, what is SatanCon? It sounds bad. Yeah. So the the Satanic Temple is this group that doesn't like religion in public life. I think someone described in a, a news article about it, like there are Satanists who actually worship Satan, and then there are Satanists who want a more secular society and don't want religious influence. And so they're often known for like trying to put up a statue of Satan or some demon in like a public area where there's a Ten Commandments statue. And then often they are not allowed to do that and sue. And that's kind of like their main thing. So- no. And I was like, they don't believe in the person of Satan. And they. I find these people to be like, Pretty unserious and mostly unhelpful to discourse. And, you know, also just like not at all religiously literate. They're like, what? Just because like, are we not a religion? We have deeply held values and beliefs. Doesn't that make us a religion? And it's like, well, not really, no. Um, And maybe just read one intro to religion textbook and you'll find out. But I I do appreciate the um, response from the Archdiocese of Boston because I think this, there's a tendency to turn events like this into like a, a media circus and to fuel an outrage machine and to play the victim. Play the victim. And I think so far the Archdiocese of Boston has resisted that temptation. Yeah. So Cardinal Sean O'Malley has basically called on Catholics to respond to this uh, with prayer. Uh, So shrines, monasteries, parishes across the city are going to be opening up for those three days for masses and Eucharistic adoration. Um, Catholics are being encouraged to pray the the prayer for St. Michael. So yeah, overreacting kind of fuels more than is helpful in response to activities like this. Yeah, so you might say that by bringing this story here, we've given this you know more media attention than it deserves but we wanted to highlight this because of the response in particular that, that you know that we mentioned from Cardinal O'Malley and the Archdiocese because I think oftentimes when we're provoked as a church sometimes we miss the mark in the way we respond and so I think by you know just sort of like channeling outrage into prayer is smart and also you know just a reminder to any who happen to be listening to this that are attending Satan Con like you are more than welcome at any of the parishes and masses in Boston that weekend. All right. Now stick around for our conversation with Dorothy Fortenberry. Joining us from Los Angeles is Dorothy Fortenberry. Dorothy is a screenwriter, playwright, and essayist, and she is an executive producer and writer on Apple TV's new series, Extrapolations. Welcome to Jesuitical, Dorothy. Hi, thank you so much for having me. 
it's it's great to have you back on an America platform. Um, it was a delight to get to meet you a couple years back. Um, and congrats on the show. So we're talking here on March 21st. So three episodes have been released so far. And we were just talking a little bit off mic about some of the reception that, that you guys have gotten, um, particularly in how it's ranged depending on how much people have sort of thought about climate change. I'm wondering if you could just start with like what your general approach was for you're like, all right, I'm making a show for a, a you know a popular audience. Like, how do I make something as big as climate change like entertainment? Totally. I will say, first of all, I joined this project when it was sort of partially along. So Scott Z. Burns is the creator of Extrapolations, and he had already pitched it and sold it to Apple and was sort of in early days of having worked through some potential ideas and some potential storylines. But I think part of the reason I ended up joining the project is that I had been on this panel with Scott where I was just kind of running my mouth off like I do about what I thought climate change storytelling should be. And something that was really important to me was I kept saying like, I'm so sick of seeing after the disaster. I'm so sick of seeing the world after everything has been ruined because all the choices have been made. You know, if you, if you meet your main characters after society has completely collapsed, then all they can really do is look for clean water, look for shelter. They can't really do anything about the events that caused the total collapse. Right. Um, and I started to feel like that kind of storytelling kind of lets all of us off the hook a little because it's sort of going like, well, there's nothing you could have done. Here you are, you know, best of luck figuring it out uh, in this tiny group of people. And I was sort of like, but we, we aren't living in a collapse right now. And God willing, we won't be living in a total collapse, you know, ever or for some time. But there still are things happening. There are still choices being made. There are still climate change is still occurring. So I was really excited. I kind of talked hypothetically on this panel with Scott about like, if only there were a show that took place <laughs> in the near future. And if only there were a show that wasn't so focused on catastrophe. And then he called uh, after the panel and it was like, hey, guess what? I, I am I making that show. show. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, I feel like I, I kind of, I don't know, I secreted the show into existence. Well, I was thinking about, sorry to cut you off. I was, I was thinking about that. I was watching it because I, the... We have so much post-apocalyptic media currently, as, as you're pointing out. And I was thinking the closest climate change movie I, I was I was thinking of was The Day After Tomorrow, I feel like was the one thing I saw when I was a kid that sure. made me just like freak out about what weather could do and climate could do. <laughs> sure. But that is very much like sort of fantastical and it happens all, like it ruins the world. And uh, so it's a little bit easy to put in like the box of fantasy in my brain, but this was very much like, sort of the things that are happening and the w disasters that are occurring are not that hard to imagine. Yeah, so for people who haven't watched yet, it starts in the year 2037, and then it kind of jumps in like increments of five or 10 years in, throughout the 21st century from there. And it's a world that you can recognize, you know, they are, you see the names of the cities and there might be more flooding, there might be forest fires on the horizon, but it's a world that, like you said, that we can, we we can live see it, ourselves and, in. And we're going to hopefully live yeah. to, you know, inhabit. Right. Yeah. And, and that was super important. And that we talked about that with all of the departments. Like when we were working on the costumes or the props, you know, we would say like, don't put them in silver lame spacesuits. You know, <laughs> don't put them, don't give them um you know, gizmos that are so incredibly otherworldly that it will feel unimaginable. 
they, there is advanced technology. There are some future fashions, but we were trying to come to a place of it looks it looks soon. It looks near. It looks not that different than what's already happening. Because um, I think if you define climate change as the complete end of the world, you know, every building has been raised, you know, every uh, person has been turned to dust, then anything short of that feels like, oh, well, that must not be climate change. And, and I think what we were trying to say is, no, climate change is when your commute is disrupted because the highway's flooded and you have to take a longer you know, trip to get into work. Climate change is when there's more mosquitoes and more mosquito-borne illness and someone you love is sick. Um, climate change can be devastating to you or really disrupt your day. And society as a whole doesn't have to be crumbling into oblivion. Can you talk a little bit about the research that went into the show to kind of depict some of these near future events? Yeah, absolutely. Scott had asked a number of scientists and climate journalists to come to the early stages of the writer's room and present on their findings. And so we worked on building just a timeline, basically stretching from like 2020, um, which is when we started the writing process, to 2070. So like a 50-year timeline of events big and small and tried to base it all around the question of what would it look like if we kept muddling along as we are. So we didn't need it to be like, there's a huge cataclysmic one event that shifts everything, but more just like, what if we bumble forward? <laughs> like, what will, what will those things lead to? When will, you know, at current rates, when will the next glacier collapse happen? And at that rate of glacier collapse, what will that do to sea level? And okay, if that's happening with the sea level, what's happening with ocean acidification? And okay, if that's happening with this, like, what does that do to carbon sinks? You know, like, just trying to sort of map out what the next 50 years might look like. Were there any that were like, you heard about or saw that someone presented on you were just like, oh, shoot, that's terrifying. Or like, I, I think about this a lot and I hadn't even considered that that might be a thing we have to worry about. I don't know whether it's a good or bad sign about me, but I was already consuming all of this information before I joined the show. <laughs> so I was kind of like the grizzled, like seen it all, um, you know. So I, I actually feel like a lot of people who joined the project, especially designers and people who are working on it, um, would come into my office and they would be horrified because they would have gotten something in a research packet. And they'd be like, oh my gosh, like, do you know, like the Amazon, like it's at a tipping point. And like, if this percentage of the Amazon is cut down, then like, you know, this mammoth quantity of carbon that can never be, you know, restored again. And I just was sort of sitting there like, yeah, no, I, I know. Isn't it, isn't it nice to be at an office where we can talk about it? Um, isn't it nice to be in a workplace where we could actually, you know, go through it? Because I, just as a human person, I, I had been thinking about climate change for so long and not been able to talk about it with anybody. So we want to get into a broader conversation with you about climate change and religion specifically. So we thought for in terms of the show, episode three touches on that very directly. There's a rabbi, uh, there's a young girl who's preparing for her bat mitzvah, and she's, you know, asking <laughs> asking the hard questions. Why is this happening? Why is God doing this? Why does God allow suffering? So could you could you tell us about about that episode and kind of just your your thoughts on it and what it says about the place of religion in this conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think 
you know, one of the things we talked about when we were conceiving the show is that climate change affects relationships. And so it reflects, you know, it affects relationships between parents and children. It affects relationships between people in romantic partnerships, but it also affects relationships that people have with the divine. Um, if you're a person who believes that there is some sort of higher power who created the entire universe and the earth and all the ecosystems that we live among, I think it's really reasonable to start asking, like, what's going on? <laughs> you know, how do we handle this? And, you know, looking back at Bible, at the Torah, like there's so many stories of natural disasters or of challenges with the environment, of there not being enough water, of there being too much water. Um, and so I think it's very reasonable that somebody who, you know, is struggling with questions of what do they believe in would have those refracted through through climate change. And I think one of the other things that that episode hopefully gets at is also the role of religion and tradition. Um, that part of what climate change does is it disrupts things. So in that episode, there's a religious community that has been going to this particular synagogue for a hundred years. They have a very particular way that they worship. You know, they they come in person. It's not on Zooms. Um, you know, there's there's a Torah. Uh, you know, and climate change is really threatening their ability to keep doing this practice. So that was also something to me was, I think if you're a religious person, you have a an individual question about, you know, where is God? How is God feeling about all of this destruction? But then you also just have these logistical challenges to your own religious practice when routines of normal life are disrupted. There's a moment from that episode that struck me where the girl who's preparing for a bat mitzvah is like, we're going through an apocalypse. Do you think God cares about a bat mitzvah? And, and the rabbi's answer is like, yeah, I do. I think God does care. And I think I care. And I think I appreciated that because there's there, there are a lot of like sort of tendencies when you dwell on uh, sort of climate disasters to either totally despair, totally ignore or whatever. But like this idea that like, no, God does still care about what's ha what we do. It's not like organizing deck chairs on the Titanic in some <laughs> ways, right? Like religion has maybe some other, other purpose than that. Totally, totally. And I think, I mean, I think there are things that religion can provide to people who are in distress that are very valuable. And I think if climate change is, you know, stressing someone out, going to a place that is built to hold mourning is very reasonable. You know, going to a place that you you go to where you say, I'm really stressed out. This is really hard, you know, help. You know, I mean, I I personally take tremendous solace in the fact that, you know, there's always an environmental component to the prayers of the faithful at my church. And it's not like, and now we're done, you know, brush off your hands, walk away. That's not sufficient. But some weeks, like that's all I got. You know, that, that some weeks it feels like that's all I can contribute. And it's wonderful to have a place that you can go and do that. There's one, you know, if, if prayer is what you have to offer in a given moment, then it's wonderful to have a place where you can pray about it. Well, that's a good place to pivot to a broader conversation about the Catholic faith and climate change, because I don't think most people have the experience of hearing about climate change at church. I, I don't think I have, and I've go to a nice church in Brooklyn. And this is years after Pope Francis has published Laudato Si, his encyclical on care for our common home. So what was your reaction when that 
Encyclical came out as someone who cares a lot about this issue. What do you think about its reception, especially in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I'm such a fan of that encyclical. I like hand out that encyclical to people. It's it's probably like my favorite thing that has been written about climate change. I mean, in, in all seriousness, I think, especially if you read a lot of other things about climate change, you realize how carefully and beautifully he's able to strike a tone that is bracing and honest without being despairing. And a lot of climate writing can really tip over into an anti-human place um, where it's kind of like people are gross and disgusting and we, we shouldn't have them and there should just be beautiful landscapes. And then maybe like a few people who can really appreciate beautiful landscapes, like me and my friend. And like that's the sort of, you know, worldview of a certain type of climate writing is like, ugh, all these gross other people mess, keep messing up my pretty planet that I want to sit on my porch and enjoy. And, you know, he, for very good reasons, does not take that approach. It's very humane and it's very focused, you know, on people with the least resources. So I just think it's, I think it's a wonderful encyclical. I was thrilled when it came out. Looking back on it, I hoped um, in a way that maybe now seems naive that it could really change the way that church in general and maybe religious communities in general interacted with climate. Climate change doesn't have to map in a particular way on American partisan politics. I think it has, uh, because a lot of things do, but I, I don't think that's inevitable. My hope was that having somebody like a Pope who is not affiliated with a particular um, American political institution might be able to galvanize a conversation that transcended them. Um, I do not think that happened um, for a number of reasons, and I'm really sad about it. One of the things I heard was that, oh, well, you know, the Pope's not a scientist, and so he really shouldn't speak on this issue, which you had a visceral reaction when I said that. <laughs> I, I, it makes me, I mean, I mean, he also, like, he is a scientist. Like, he's at least, like, more educated on science than a lot of people. Um, <laughs> yes. and, and, and second of all, like, I think the idea that the only people who can speak about climate change are, you know, our scientists is ridiculous. Like I, I have a friend who um, spends a lot of time volunteering at the Catholic worker in her community with homeless people. And she's like, you know, who knows a lot about climate change? Homeless people, because they are really attuned to the weather and like really, really know if it's getting a few degrees hotter and really, really know if, you know, storms are getting worse. And like, they are out there every single day. And so they're, are, you know, their ability to opine and, you know, talk about how climate change is going is really intense because that's what they're living through. And so I don't know that I think everybody who has ever made small talk about the weather is qualified <laughs> to talk about climate change. Yeah, no, like you don't hear anyone saying, oh, the Pope can't talk about abortion because he's not a doctor or a woman. Like, <laughs> Exactly. If, if Indeed. It's an, if it's an issue that uh, touches on uh, matters of human life, I think he's he's qualified. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I just think it's a great encyclical. I think it's it's really rare to find something that is just, that loves people 
and also is concerned about climate change because it's concerned about, you know, people and other species. Um, and, and to have, to have a sense, to come from a place of, of love for other people, um, to me is a really important part of the climate work. And it's not always what's foregrounded. I want to ask, what was the reception like in the writer's room? Were you like, if, 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 and when you brought Laudato Si or Pope Francis up, were people aware of that? Were they into it? Were they, you know, cautiously open to hearing from the church on this issue? Yeah. I'm trying to think if I brought up Laudato Si specifically. I definitely gave a copy to Scott um, when we, when we finished the season, like it was my, my parting gift. I was just like, look, you know, I've been talking about this in one way or another for the last couple of years. Um, I wasn't in a sort of conventional writer's room. So it was mostly just me and Scott or me and the producers. And then we would talk to individual writers of individual episodes. By the time I joined, we didn't have kind of a collective room anymore. But I did bring up very early being religious, um, especially with episode three, like it was kind of in early stages. And, and I was kind of like, hey, I have some thoughts about this um, this episode. I'm gonna I'm gonna you know take a stab at, at uh, reconceiving some things because as a religious person, you know, here's here's what I think. I'm wondering if was there like a a particular like approach or like I don't know if you were like using the words like technocratic paradigm like when you're chatting <laughs> with people, but like was there like a particular insight of you know, let out to see your Francis's or um, that you wanted to bring to the show and into some of the episodes? Yeah. I mean, I will say, I don't know that I ever did this in like a head on confrontation way. I think I more did it in a like sort of behind the scenes, um, you know, boop de boop, here I am um, <laughs> trying to sort of nudge things along. Um, but I, I think something that from Laudato Si that I really took was, um, we're never going to talk about overpopulation. Mm-hmm. Like we never, that that is not a phrase, that is not a concept. Um, there's never the sense in series that there are hmm. such a thing as too many people. Um, and that is something that I, I come to, you know, from the encyclical, from my faith. Um, but that's not like a, you know, universally accepted principle in no. the group of people who talk about climate change. So that was that was a place where I was coming where I was like, hey, here's what we're not going to do. You know, we're not going to say that there's such a thing as too many people or there are some subset of people who should not be reproducing. And we're going to try to like, you know, stop them from doing so. Can we dig into that? Because I do think um, there probably is a subset of Catholics who are just kind of biased against environmentalism broadly because they see it as a kind of, as you said before, anti-human <laughs> movement. There are people my age who are like, I can't have kids because either one, I don't want them growing up in a hellscape or two, it's just unethical to add another carbon footprint to the world. How do you respond to that line of argument? Yeah, I hate it so much. Um, <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> I hate it so so much. I mean, I hate I hate the line of argument of, of people shouldn't have children for the planet. I think people should have children if they would like to have children. If people would not like to have children, they should not have children. And I think by and large, getting into other people's business and telling them, you know, when and how they should have children is not a great line of work to be in. And I think that trying to communicate that 
it is a bad idea to have kids, that people shouldn't have kids, that their kids will grow up in a hellscape, that their kids are just carbon factories. I think that's bleak. I think it's gross. I just, it makes me angry on pretty much every level. I really feel like, you know, I have kids. If people would like to have kids, I really think they should have kids. And I hate to think of somebody getting to the end of their life who very much wanted to have children looking around and going like, well, it's not great, but it's not a hellscape. I really wish I had some, you know, children and grandchildren here to hang out with me. Um, We just can't know. Like we can't know. We we can't know what the future is going to be. It's it's so hubristic to assert that it's guaranteed. Um, And I think it's it's a real sort of sin of pride to act like you know exactly what the future is going to be. And so you can make this confident decision that it definitely is not a place that you want to have kids. I think if you don't want to have kids, like amazing, you know, many of my best friends don't have children. They're wonderful people. They make great babysitters because they're very well rested. Um, it's like, I, I would never go to someone's house and force them, you know, to do something they didn't want to do. But I, I think that so this is the handmaid's tale terrible. coming out of you. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, exactly. I have a very, like, like, let me not try to orchestrate, you know, odd fertility schemes. Um, I did work on the handmaid's tale. There are some really touching moments in extrapolations between uh, parents and their children. And I think, like, there's a case to be made that, like, I don't know, part of wanting to hand on our, a com- our common home to your to the next generation to your children is has to be like it, a huge source of like hope or protection against nihilism when it comes to considering yeah. this issue. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean I I think wherever you can find wherever anybody can find forces that will bolster them against nihilism, I feel like those are the things to lean into. So for me that's church, for me that's my kids, um for somebody else it'll be something else. But um, I think really trying not to give in to despair is incredibly important when we think about this issue. Yeah, and and not telling other people how many kids to have. (laughs) Yeah. The Center at Mariondale is a spiritual retreat house conveniently located just 30 miles north of New York City on 61 acres above the banks of the Hudson River. Mariondale offers retreats and programs in spirituality, contemplative practices, social and environmental justice, interfaith dialogue, and the arts. The Center at Mariondale is a sponsored ministry of the Dominican Sisters of Hope. Learn more at mariondale.org. That's M A R. I-A-N-D-A-L-E dot org. So one place of overlap between Laudato Si and extrapolations, even if it wasn't like uh, intentional, is grappling with this question of what Pope Francis calls the technocratic paradigm. But just this idea is like, of is technology going to be what saves us or does there have to be what Pope Francis would call like an ecological conversion in in our hearts a moral conversion yeah and i think i think that's something that the show tries to take on especially through all eight episodes um and i think living through covid was a real sort of object lesson for me in this which is that you know people were able to develop a vaccine we had very 
great scientists working around the clock with lots of amazing science and they developed a vaccine and the vaccine was like not maybe exactly as awesome as you know everybody said and not a hundred percent but it was like a very 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 good vaccine and it did a really good job of reducing death rates but the vaccine as a technology is not capable of making sure that it's distributed equitably in places that lack refrigeration. Like the vaccine cannot do that. That is a job for forces beyond the vaccine. The vaccine can't prevent vaccination as an issue from becoming a political hot button and, you know, being used for people for sort of, you know, ends that really have nothing to do with vaccination. Like, like it just exists. And that's very much how I think the show and I feel about technology is it's amazing and it's incredible. And I'm very glad I got my vaccine, but it can't possibly be an end to itself because it can only be used by people for human ends. And so how are those people using it? You know, I mean, there's already amazing technology in terms of climate. I have tremendous faith in our ability to invent more. I'm excited to find out that we're going to, you know, develop even more and awesome things, but someone developing something in a lab somewhere doesn't get it into people's hands, you know, doesn't get it distributed fairly. That's all the work of people. Yeah. There, to make it concrete, there's this concept of like carbon capture that's very controversial among climate talkers. And I am not a scientist and not like Pope Francis isn't a scientist. <laughs> like I barely know anything, but like, the, as I understand it, you essentially would like you take carbon out of the existing atmosphere and store it underground somewhere where it can't continue to warm the planet. And some people like right now, it's not really realistic for cost purposes and like the tech isn't quite there, but there are other like climate activists and scientists that like sort of don't love going down the path of figuring out how to make that work because it just is like going to let all of us off the hook without having learned our lesson in some ways. I'm curious like what you think about that because I am, I feel really conflicted because I feel like there are moral changes we need to go through and moral lessons we need to learn, particularly about like whether we can always have economies that grow on limited resources, whether that's sustainable for ever and ever. But on the other hand, I also want to prevent climate disasters in any way possible. Totally. We, uh, this is, I feel like I'm going to spoil episodes later in the season, but we do kind of get into this issue. I, I know. Um, I felt very uh, indicted by it a little bit. Uh, we, so we got, <laughs> we little... access to the screener. So I, we did see. Oh, okay. Some great. Of them. Great, yeah, great, yeah. great. Um, so we, yeah, we get into, we get into this a little bit later, but yeah, I, I think it's really complicated. I will always position myself as the reasonable person between two unreasonable extremists. <laughs> so <laughs> Like if on the one hand you have like, you know, utopian technology will save us all, you know, all we need is the right tool. Um, people, I feel like I'm sort of skeptical of that, but I'm also skeptical. I think there is a bit of a tendency, especially among like wealthy Western climate people to be like, we must not ever do anything that would disrupt like the beautiful indigenous ways of life of people who don't have running water. And I'm like, eh. I don't, I don't know. Like, I feel like you in your nice house, you know, I, I don't know that you get to say that, like, you know, inventing a technology isn't the way out because it makes you feel bad because you want the sort of end to be that everybody realized they shouldn't have running water except for you because um, you still live in your really lovely house. So 
I, I think it's I think it's tricky. I mean, if I were a billionaire, I would certainly be spending 99 cents of every dollar on carbon capture and one cent on rockets to Mars. Like I feel like the <laughs> carbon capture rockets to Mars calculus that a lot of, you know, our billionaires are making is, is not what I would encourage them. So if any are listening, um, perhaps we have perhaps several billionaire listeners to, yes. this, to this program. So if the answer is, is part technology and part, you know, how we use it and what morality is shaping that. Um, how do you go about trying to change hearts and minds? Because we find, so at America, we will publish stuff on climate change and we find it very hard to get an audience. Like people just are kind of sick of reading it after like the 27th doom report from the United Nations. So what's your approach to to actually, you know, changing people's minds on this? Yeah, I mean, let's see if we do, right? Maybe yeah. no one will watch the show, but hopefully, <laughs> hopefully people are watching. Um, I mean, I think it, it's about making it human scale. I think the scale of those kinds of reports can just be crushing um, and it can make a person feel kind of, like a tiny statistic and feel very disempowered um, and feel sort of ambient shame um, without sort of any ability to do anything. Um, and I think my hope and our hope in making the show is we try to keep it about people who were sort of people sized. So they seemed about the size and shape of you and me, you know, and some of them have more or less power, but all of them have choices and all of them have the ability to try to do what they think is the right thing in any given moment. Um, and I think that's what we tried to focus on was not, not staying always at the sort of super high up level where you're just watching, you know, millions and billions of people um, experiencing something, but trying to really ground it in a family or a partnership in the hopes that those smaller, more intimate stories might make people feel more inclined to imagine themselves as part of some sort of solution or part of some sort of collective process, um, as opposed to just feeling like, you know, I'm a statistic in a sea of statistics, and now I need to lo go lie down. You mentioned earlier, like, when you're just reading about it by yourself, it's like really hard. And, you know, there was a weight lifted from you when you were able to write a show, like go to an, a workplace where you could affect some of that change. And I felt that way similarly when, you know, things are bad in the world. I can I can go to work and talk about it and hopefully help people make sense of it, particularly with climate change. It can be this thing that I felt like this or it's this massive issue that I'm generally like I want to be helpful in finding the solution, but I have no applicable way of doing that. So what's my, is it just recycle? Like, is that the, like, what's No, <laughs> it's not recycle. I mean, I, I think it is recycle in the, I think recycling is a useful spiritual practice. Like I think recycling is like a gesture that we make in the direction of the idea that this is a thing that we want to care about. But like, I mean, plastics recycling is such a joke. It's actually, it's very disheartening. So I feel like every time I recycle plastic, I'm like, this is maybe not doing anything, but I'm, I'm trying. Well, it's like an um, effort at holiness almost in that yeah, regard. Totally. No, yeah. I think I think my my plastics recycling my, my recycling practice and my prayer practice are basically the same. I'm like, I'm sending this off. I don't know where it's going. <laughs> well, it's very um, Lenten, because like you give up chocolate, not because chocolate is evil. You give up chocolate so that hopefully it'll remind you to think about God. 
<laughs> no, exactly. And I think that's what recycling is. Like, I think recycling is like the faith part of like a faith and works approach to climate change. So yeah. like you do these like small practices in your home to like create an identity as somebody who thinks about these things, but that they are not and cannot be sufficient. And then I think it's about figuring out like, where does my small city get its electricity from? And how do we decide that? And is there a city council election that's maybe coming up where we could maybe talk about that? And is there somebody, you know, coming in who's offering to put in solar panels on the farm next door? And what would that do? You know? Um, And I think there's, there's an understandable fear that some of the climate technologies is going to change things. And yes, it will be different living next door to a solar panel than, you know, living next door to, to a wheat field, but, but inaction will also change things too. So I think for me, at least beginning with the personal practices helps ground me. So, you know, uh, we do all these small things around the house. Um, and my kids are, you know, always annoyed at me because I am that person who's like, telling them to like go hang up the laundry outside on the line or, you know, not take a long shower. Um, But then those things ultimately, I think, hopefully give us the sort of energy to, you know, go to city council meetings or think about things like if you're making a bigger purchase, like a car or a stove, you know, what you might be making. Um, I mean, the, the Inflation Reduction Act has a whole bunch of money for people to buy stuff. And like, I feel like it is, you know, counterintuitive to say like, oh, the solution is definitely just be a consumer. Um, I feel like that's not the spirit of Laudato Si. Um, but insofar as, you know, there are times in your life where you need to go buy some new stuff, um, you can make uh, purchasing choices in that direction. Um, but also you can not buy some stuff, which would be a... Also good for <laughs> a different kind of of climate uh, climate choice, but and then I think the other thing is really just talking about it. Like I think there is this weird thing where where we all know about it, but the way we talk about it is so weird and sort of grim and fatalistic. Um, and I think anytime anybody talks about it in a non grim, non fatalistic way, they're helping sort of create the imaginative space that this might be something that we can help mitigate, this will be a defining factor of all of our lives for the next couple of decades. So let's try to find an outlook that allows us to endure for that long and keep trying to work at it. Right. Well, that's a relatively hopeful and constructive place to wrap up. Um, But before we let you go, we do have one final question that we ask all of our guests, which is if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? So this is a sort of a weird example, maybe. But um, one of the movies that I love to watch with my kids is The Secret of Kells, which is about the illuminated manuscripts. If you haven't seen this, it's an animated movie. It's great. And they recently discovered um, all this lapis lazuli in the teeth of this woman from the 12th century. And so she, they think that, it was a, that there was actually a woman who was involved in some of the copying of these illuminated manuscripts. And I think a lot about the work of those manuscripts and all of the people who labored on these things, basically keeping this information and these texts alive for centuries in a time where nobody was reading, nobody was really using them, but it was this act of, I guess I'm focused on acts of endurance, right? And like the things that we do to survive. Um, 
and and with a hope and with a belief that at some point someone will see them and appreciate them. And so I feel like somewhere there's uh, an anonymous woman who kept, you know, sacred texts alive. And I think that's really amazing. And I think she should be canonized. I love that. That's perfect. All right. Well, again, Dorothy, thank you so much for joining us. The show is Extrapolations, which you can stream right now on Apple TV+. Plus. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of the show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. So starting out, want to thank our new Patreon supporters that came in over the weekend. So doubling down on the mats supporting the show. So we've got a huge thank you to give out to Matthew Mattis and Matthew Eichner. Both of you became Patreon supporters this weekend. And just in time for some new uh, BC bonus content coming. <laughs> yeah, last week we promised that we would have some more coverage of this new documentary on Hulu called The Pope Answers. And we're, we're following through on that. The, earlier today, we recorded that bonus episode with our colleagues Jim McDermott and Ricardo De Silva, both priests who had um, articles in America about the documentary. So uh, we would definitely recommend watching that beforehand. But if you don't have Hulu, you can read these stories that we'll link to in the show notes uh, so you have, have a better context for our conversation. We did invite the Pope to answer more questions on the bonus episode. He did not get back to us in time. Um, not yet. So look for that in the feed in the coming weeks. That'll we'll, we'll drop a sample of it in so you can get a taste of the conversation so everyone can get uh, clued in a little bit. But if you want to get that whole bonus episode, uh, go ahead and sign up at patreon.com slash America Media. Uh, what else we got this week, Ashley? If you're listening to this on Friday, tomorrow, April 22nd is Earth Day. And we have a lot of really great content at americamagazine.org uh, covering the environment, uh, including a piece from Jim McDermott on icons that depict endangered species, and one from our colleague, Father James Martin, uh, about going to the very first Earth Day way back when. So you won't want to miss those. You can find them at americamagazine.org. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. Um, and this week, I wanted to talk about an experience I had that kind of made more concrete for me, this idea of being a synodal church. We've we've poked some gentle fun <laughs> on this show about the idea of a synod on synodality, or, you know, like some people call it a meeting about having meetings or just a new way of being church and dialogue and walking with. And it, it can feel very vague to me. Um, and I don't think you're alone there. Yeah. <laughs> and this weekend, I, I went to a, a Catholic conference. I'll keep it vague just to respect people's privacies who were there because we we're having... Um, you know, private conversations. But the idea of the conference was to bring together people, Catholics who care about the church uh, for dialogue around, you know, different difficult issues the church is facing, um, different issues that this group was facing. And I had this experience in my first, first half of the conference of feeling like I was the only one who wasn't there with the explicit idea of like, 
we need to change and fix the church. It, so I, I don't like using the political categories, but I, I it's the easiest way to say it is like I thought I was like the lone conservative there. And so for the first part of it, I really wasn't talking. I was afraid to talk. Um, and because I was operating out of a place of fear, I wasn't really engaging with the other people at the conference. And I was like, oh, not only disagreeing with them, but like projecting ideas that they hadn't said, but I was just making assumptions about what I thought they believed. And so just like not actually doing dialogue right. And then at some point, someone at the conference was addressing the question, like, what voices are missing that that aren't here? Who should be here? And and she mentioned that. She's like, well, it seems like everyone here agrees with each other. And so that doesn't really help advance dialogue around difficult questions if we're all like, yep, we agree. And so her just saying that gave me the space to kind of out myself being like, hi, I, I am here. <laughs> um, I've been afraid to talk. Um, I think there are ways that in which this conference was set up that made it more difficult for me to talk, but I'm, I'm glad I have this invitation to say it. And so it was a scary thing to do. Like, they were all friendly, lovely people. I, I don't know why my main reaction was one of fear and and feeling defensive. Like if I put my ideas out there, then I would have to defend them, and then maybe maybe I wouldn't be able to do it in a in a good way. But as soon as I did that, so many people came up to me and were just like, "Thank you! Like it's this is what we wanted. Um, this is the kind of openness we needed in this conference." So it was just a really interesting experience for me to be like. There wasn't an end goal of this dialogue, but just participating in it brought me into relationship with these people that I might have differing opinions with. It's interesting. I listening here to you, like your hesitation to like mm -hmm. say what you really think. I also think this is a fitting coda to um, Liel's Lenten uh, mm -hmm. sacrifice for us. That I will that say, I was a little bit inspired by. <laughs> yeah, uh, for for people that hadn't hasn't listened to this episode, uh, our friend at Unorthodox, Leah Leibowitz, encouraged us to speak our truth, so to speak, uh, this Lenten season. So I'm glad that you had a chance to do so. But my usual hesitation is not that I like feel like I need to defend my beliefs. It's like when I shy away from saying what I think, it's usually because like maybe this is like older sibling in me, but like I'm trying to preserve harmony and unity, and mm -hmm. so I'm I'm constantly trying to steer conversations away from conflict. I'm always trying to skid away from from that same problem but different different reason i think that's kept me from i would say probably some more synodal conversations yeah and so what i like this experience did not lead me to any grand conclusions like i feel like i left being so like so you went to this conference and didn't solve the church's no. problems <laughs> why were you even there uh no and and i didn't solve my own problems i i went away thinking you know this is something i really need to bring to prayer like when is defending your ideas what you need to be doing and when is just being open and stating them without without an agenda without assuming that someone's going to attack them but just stating them to engage in dialogue is something that is kind of new for me and and hard and something i want to i want to work on so listeners, not not a very clear takeaway, but, you know, are there places where you have been hesitant to speak your truth <laughs> um, for fear of disrupting harmony or for fear of having those deeply held beliefs challenged in questions? Um, and, and I'll just throw it in. The Internet <laughs> is not a 
Yeah. <laughs> good answer here. Yeah. Pope Francis did say this week, I don't know if you saw that, you, know, you don't defend the gospel from your keyboard, no. which is a devastating attack on us, I think. But <laughs> we, we podcast, we don't type, so it's... He wasn't talking to us. Yep. All right. I will get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Cristobal Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.